Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussein. The Armenian authorities say that almost the entire population of 120,000 ethnic Armenians are now gone from Nagorno-Karabakh. Days after Azerbaijan launched a lightning offensive and said it had taken back full control of the breakaway region, sparking a mass exodus of the region's 120,000 ethnic Armenians. This is what an exodus looks like. Tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians are fleeing. They're leaving the disputed enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh a forgotten corner of the world, but home to one of its most bitter ethnic conflicts. As global media focus continues to center on the ongoing war in Ukraine, another long-standing conflict has entered a horrifying new chapter. Following a nine-month blockade, preventing the flow of basic necessities like food and medical supplies, the Azerbaijani military attacked the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh on September 19th. The military assault has sparked a mass exodus of the region's 120,000 ethnic Armenians and the collapse of the Republic of Artsakh. While this crisis has a long history, its geography and the politics of the crisis are situated in the center of the emerging global realignment of alliances and the Cold War 2.0 reality. Many of the major players in the Ukraine war have their hands in this conflict, Russia, the United States, Turkey, and the European Union. Our guest today is Maria Titizian, a writer and journalist with over 15 years of experience reporting the news from Armenia. She was associate editor of The Armenian Reporter, managing editor at CivilNet. She lectures at the American University of Armenia and is the editor-in-chief of EVN Report. She's joining us from Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. Maria, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for the invitation. I just want to start off with with a really basic sort of question of geography. I, th- I think a lot of people, particularly in the United States right now, are inundated with war news. Things start to blend together. More likely, though, people haven't been following anything about what's happening to the Armenian people, uh, the the war with Azerbaijan, the Cold War politics at play. Just just sort of set the stage for us. Where is this conflict happening in the world? What is at the the heart of it? Basically, just give people an overview, but first start by just explaining geographically, where are we talking about? 
Well, Armenia is located just east of Turkey, uh, north of Iran, south of the Republic of Georgia, south of Russia, and uh, west of Azerbaijan. Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia uh, comprise the South Caucasus. We are post-Soviet states, although we were quite tired of that uh, qualification because we have been independent since 1991. Uh, so in the Soviet era, um, as was the policy, there were a lot of um, artificial borders drawn up and minorities being placed in other Soviet socialist republics. The Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast, as it was known, or the Republic of Artsakh, as we called it, was uh, an autonomous region placed within uh, Soviet Azerbaijan. And in 1988, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, there was a, a large movement for reunification with Armenia because Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh had always historically for millennia been part of uh, historic Armenia. Um, and those calls for uh, unification were met with pogroms and attacks and an all-out war that Azerbaijan launched that lasted until 1994. Um, that war resulted in the Armenian side taking control of Nagorno-Karabakh and seven regions around the oblast. And since 1994, we've been living in a state of no war, no peace, where there have been countless skirmishes along the line of contact. Azerbaijan has always uh, promised or threatened to take back the territory. And so, of course, there was this... Uh, this contradiction, if you will, not a contradiction, but part of the international order where on the one hand you had the right to self-determination of the people, of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, and on the other hand, the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. And then in 2020, Azerbaijan launched a large-scale war against Nagorno-Karabakh, lasted for 44 days and ended in the catastrophic defeat of the Armenian side. So it's, just, it's a very complicated history that goes back to a century ago. And people, as you said, in the United States and the West are, are dealing with so many other conflicts, and this gets lost in the news. With the defeat in uh, 2020, Azerbaijan has been trying to enforce a victor's peace and trying to get more and more concessions out of Armenia. And this led to uh, the latest uh, massive assault that led to the total and complete ethnic cleansing of the 120,000 people of Nagorno-Karabakh. They have now uh, been forcibly displaced and are in Armenia. Maria, can you tell us a bit about the respective leaders involved in this conflict? I know in Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan is a leader, and also in Azerbaijan, it's Ilham Aliyev. Uh, what are the character and the backgrounds of these leaders, and how have they approached this conflict as it's playing out at the moment? Again, in the post-Soviet space, most of the countries that... Um, became independent after 1991, have all uh, sort of followed the same trajectory in terms of lack of democracy, corruption. But in 2018, uh, there was a, a, a large grassroots uprising in Armenia, led by Nikol Pashinyan, who is the prime minister today. And uh, it was called the Velvet Revolution. And Armenia today is the most democratic country in all of Eurasia. We have a, a generation of young people who, who believe in those values of human rights and freedom of speech and, and freedom of assembly. Uh, and it, we have a very vibrant civil society, a very varied and free press. 
Azerbaijan, on the other hand, has been led by the Aliyev family for over 25 years. Ilham Aliyev took over from his father, Haidar Aliyev. His wife, uh, Meraban Alieva, is the vice president of Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is considered to be one of the most despotic and authoritarian countries in the world. It ranks the lowest on all indicators for uh, human rights, political prisoners, freedom of speech, etc. And unfortunately, Unfortunately for the region, unfortunately for Armenia, they don't have a free press, nor do they have a free and independent civil society. And uh, one of the reasons that Aliyev has been waging this war is for his own domestic stability, because as a dictator, he needs to have an external enemy. And uh, there has been a state-sponsored policy of hatred toward the Armenian. It's called Armenophobia. It's in their school textbooks. It's in all of their literature. And, you know, Armenians are called cancerous tumors. They say that we're going to be, you know, driven out of uh, these lands like dogs. And all of these things have led to a, a, a very poisonous and toxic uh, environment in the region. So so that's basically the, the difference between the two countries. One is a, a democracy that has been struggling to remain a democracy in a sea of dictators. And um, Azerbaijan is an authoritarian state whose ally is Turkey, another authoritarian state, and who uh, today is Moscow's strategic partner. Armenia is not Moscow's strategic partner, run by another authoritarian leader. Um, so Armenia and Georgia, which is the country to the north uh, of us, are the two uh, struggling democracies in a sea of dictatorships and authoritarianism in Eurasia. Uh, this is the reality we live in. <laughs> I wanted to also uh, ask you about the relationship uh, between the president of Armenia um, and this region that we're talking about um, that is is nestled within Azerbaijan itself, the Nagorno-Karabakh region. There's tension there. There were large protests that took place in Yerevan, where you sit right now, uh, with uh, many Armenians calling on uh, the president to to do more. To, to stop the slaughter, to stop the mass expulsions. What is the relationship between Armenia itself, the current government, um, and the authorities or the population um, in Nagorno-Karabakh? Okay, I just I need to go back a little bit. After the defeat in 2020, there were calls for the resignation of the Prime Minister of Nikol Pashinyan. Um, and I was one of those people who said that, yes, a, a leader that leads a country into a disastrous defeat should resign. He chose not to resign. Uh, he chose to stay on to power. And this, of course, precipitated a lot of protests in the country. This is starting in 2020. And this was a natural expression of protest, and people were uh, absolutely in, in, in their right to protest the sitting government. Um, but these protests did lead to him resigning to trigger a special parliamentary uh, election, which took place in June 2021, and he was elected again. <laughs> so the prime minister who led the country into its most catastrophic defeat in a century was re-elected by the population only because the opposition were representatives of the former regimes, and they were obviously not trusted by society. But what has happened that 
uh, since then, there is a huge asymmetry in power in the region between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan has been using a lot of hybrid warfare tactics to destabilize Armenia in order for it to gain more concessions, and Moscow has been very handily uh, helping Baku in that uh, endeavor. And what happened after 2020, Armenia was no longer the security guarantor of the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, because Armenia's army itself had been devastated and decimated. And after the November 9, 2020 trilateral agreement statement between Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia, Russian peacekeepers were deployed to Nagorno-Karabakh to ensure the safety and security of the people of the Armenian population. Well, unfortunately, the Russian peacekeepers were not able to fulfill those duties. And in December of 2022, so-called Azerbaijani eco-activists, which were basically state-sponsored individuals, blockaded the Lachin Corridor, which was the only lifeline between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh, effectively placing 120,000 people in a siege for nine months, basically starving them cutting their electricity, access to natural gas, to hygiene products, to medical services. And this culminated on September 19 when um, Azerbaijan launched a massive attack. And we'll get to that. But just to, to, to sort of give you the context, the leadership in Artsakh had always been dependent upon the Armenian leadership for decades as their security guarantors. But after November 9, Armenian armed forces were pulled out of Nagorno-Karabakh, and all that remained was the Artsakh Defense Army, which was a defense force to protect the population. That, along with the Russian peacekeepers, were, we, we believed, uh, were there to protect the people. And in fact, they green-lighted everything that Baku did, unfortunately. And now we have an entire region, an entire society that is uh, completely um, cleansed from its indigenous homelands. And Maria, you spoke a bit about the role of Turkey and Russia briefly in the conflict and their respective stance. Can you tell us a bit more about the stances of regional countries and how and how and why they've taken the sides they have in the conflict? I'm thinking of Iran as well, too, which seems to be more on the side of Armenia. Uh, what are the roles of each of these countries in the conflict and why have they taken the positions they have? Sure. Well, Turkey has always been uh, Azerbaijan's closest strategic ally. They're both Turkic-speaking nations, and Erdogan has and Aliyev have on many occasions that they are two countries, one nation. So Turkey has always been a very, very active supporter of uh, Azerbaijan. And in fact, during the first Karabakh war, as Armenian forces were gaining more territory, Turkey closed its border with Armenia uh, in 1992, and it remains closed until today in solidarity with Azerbaijan. Turkey has always tried to force more concessions out of Armenia because of its relationship with Baku. Now, Russia was always considered to be Armenia's strategic ally, its military ally. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a 1997 uh, bilateral agreement uh, on, on friendship and cooperation. And Armenia was also is also a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, which is, for your listeners, I guess the equivalent of the post-Soviet NATO. That includes countries like Belarus, Kazakhstan, Russia, obviously, and Armenia. So Armenia, because it was surrounded by hostile neighbors to the east and the west, so four, two of its four borders have been blockaded since the early 90s. Russia was always seen as the security guarantor, the, the strategic military ally of Armenia. There's a Russian base in Armenia's second largest capital. Russian 
FSB uh, um, servicemen guard the border with Turkey, and Armenia was a member of the CSTO, and also Armenia joined the Eurasian Economic Union, although for years leading up to that decision, it was uh, negotiating with the EU to be to sign an association agreement with the European Union, but this was changed in 2013 after President Putin called then uh, President Sarkisyan Serge to Moscow and Armenia took a complete U-turn in its foreign policy. So Armenia was all in with Russia being its uh, sort of protector. But what we saw with the 2020 war, um, Russia allowed the war to continue for 44 days, leading to thousands and thousands and thousands of young men and women losing their lives. Um, the day after that ceasefire statement was signed. Russian peacekeepers were already in Nagorno-Karabakh, and the deal was that Russia was to protect the Armenians. But what we saw was two days before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Ilham Aliyev, president of Azerbaijan, was in Moscow, and they signed a landmark deal with Russia. And since then, their relations have grown and deepened. And, you know, this is just my very own, very personal take on it. And uh, Russia knew that by invading Ukraine, they would possibly be faced with sanctions. And he needed Azerbaijan to use the pipelines to get its gas and oil to Europe. So basically, uh, Europe is using Russian gas and oil via Azerbaijan, and uh, everything that has been happening since 2020 clearly shows that Moscow is not Armenia's strategic ally at the moment. It has been playing by Baku's playbook for, you know, geopolitical reasons. And then, of course, we have Iran to the south, and Iran has always said that it is not in favor of uh, any territorial changes in the sense of communication routes. They recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan's territorial integrity, but they have good relations with Armenia. And we need to have good relations with Iran as it is only two of our routes to the outside world. I spoke way too much about the background, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of story here to tell uh, and to unpack at the moment. No, it's it's very valuable. And in fact, I mean, I, I personally think that in the societies that we're living in now with social media, we have such a short attention span that is being, you know, culturally just drilled into us. And so it's it's refreshing to hear someone actually walk through with that level of detail, the political context. And on that note, I wanted to ask you about the role of the United States. You, you mentioned uh, 2020. And I just want to remind people who may not have paid attention to it, that Azerbaijan waged this war um, in, in 2020, um, and in part used Syrian mercenaries, Israeli drones, and captured roughly 75% of the territory. And there were uh, as many or almost as many victims um, in that 44-day uh, war as in the four years of the, of the first war. President Trump was in power during that period. And Joe Biden, when he was running against Trump, actually criticized him for essentially allowing a slaughter to take place. But many Armenians have been very, very critical of the Biden administration's, well, what they perceive as, as inaction or allowing this to happen. Talk, talk a bit about that, Maria, about Trump's position during this uh, scorched earth war of 2020, where you had Syrian mercenaries, Israeli drones, um, and Trump essentially, uh, by default, uh, allowing it to happen by not criticizing it. And then what is the policy right now of the Biden administration? 
You know, I'm from North America originally. I'm from Canada. So I, I, I see both ends of the world. I've been living in Armenia now for 22 years. And when Trump was in power, much of American foreign policy was non-existent in this region. We didn't see America being uh, active in any way, shape, or form, uh, even though uh, Americans had intelligence of what was going to happen and unfold. And of course, it was right before the elections, and Azerbaijan used the opportunity with Trump's uh, administration to launch this massive attack. This was back in 2020. With Biden coming to power, there were some hopes that the the shift in focus would change with America because today, uh, whether the rest of the world acknowledges or wants to acknowledge it or not, uh, the United States still remains, in terms of hard power, the leader in the world. And, and w- when America says or does something, other countries will fall into place. But unfortunately, what we have seen and what we are going to continue to see, and this is not only about Armenia or Nagorno-Karabakh, is a total failure of international diplomacy diplomacy and the rules-based international order. When dictators are winning against democracies, you know, fledgling democracies who need support because they are surrounded, and uh, we see countries like Turkey, who is a NATO member, funneling Syrian mercenaries to Azerbaijan, bringing terrorism to our region. When we're seeing Israel, a country that also suffered Holocaust the way the Armenians suffered genocide, is supplying Azerbaijan with Harab drones and every other kind of military hardware that you can imagine. And then we have a lot of lip service coming out of Washington and Brussels. I don't want to leave Brussels out of the equation because, you know, I kept telling people, you know, as long as Europe is warm, this was last year, that's all that matters at this point because all they want is Azerbaijani oil to stay warm. But it's okay that they, you know, that they sacrifice us on the altar of this bullshit called diplomacy or democracy. State Secretary Blinken has seen himself as um, a facilitator in, in the in the conflict, not as a mediator, and that was, I think, his biggest mistake. And uh, there have been a lot of statements. Assistant Secretary of State Yuri Kim, during a congressional hearing, this was in the beginning of September, before the large-scale attack last week, who said that they will not allow ethnic cleansing to happen in Nagorno-Karabakh. And Yuri Kim and Samantha Powers came to Armenia when the mass exile of my people was taking place, when it was too late. They came for their photo ops, they got their photos, and one day they might write books about it and say, I was there, I witnessed, I saw, when they had everything in their arsenal to stop it. And yet they naively believed in the promise of a dictator. They believed in this peace process. They believed in a peace process when they were dealing with a dictator who holds, by the way, countless Armenian prisoners of war, who has uh, committed documented war crimes. When a female soldier in September of 2022 was raped, her fingers cut off, stuffed in her mouth, and obscenities carved out on her body. This is what we're dealing with, where they cut off ears of soldiers, where they cut off fingers of soldiers, like the trigger finger. This is what we're dealing with. And, you know, somebody who believes, I'm talking about myself, in, in democracy, I really believe in those values. I am, I'm devastated in, 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 in my own naivety and believing that the West, when they said, you know, we're going to support democracies, they they didn't. And Nancy Pelosi was here uh, about a year ago, and I was one of the few people invited to meet with her. And I said, listen, 
if Armenia falls as a democracy and Georgia falls, that w- Georgia will fall, that means you have an entire Eurasian continent full of authoritarian dictators on the footsteps of Europe. And you have to do everything to support us because this is what we, we've shown it over and over again. But, you know, of course, it's all about energy and uh, geopolitics. It's also about the West wanting to push Russia out of the region. It's Russia not wanting to lose its southern security belt. So we are at the mercy of two powers and we are not Ukraine. We are not blonde enough or blue-eyed enough or strategically important enough. And of course, nobody in the United States knows about us. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You, you mentioned um, Samantha Power, and of course, she became famous writing books about genocide and ethnic cleansing. And I've actually debated Samantha Power before on, on television about the hypocrisy, where she applies these labels selectively. And, and that's been true of her for a very long time, and it remains true now. Um, when she was in the region recently, and she was standing um, surrounded by people who had fled their homes, um, she was actually confronted, and um, and people were yelling at her to stop the lies and to go, go home herself. And what Samantha Power said was, there are still tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians who are live, are there living in very vulnerable conditions. And already you're seeing as well the gathering of testimonies from people who have fled violence, deprivation, and with the fear of living under the government of Azerbaijan. Well, what the people, and correct me if I'm wrong here, what my, my interpretation from watching this footage was that people were standing there. Some of them, I think, were familiar with um, her record um, as as someone who is running around the world condemning ethnic cleansing and genocide, and they were basically saying, where is that label here? Um, and if you're not going to speak straight about this, then you need to go home. Your, your response to that, or maybe you can describe that interaction further with Samantha Power as she stood among people who were forcibly displaced from their homes and is not applying a label that she really promoted as an academic and an author. She she was asked straight out, is this ethnic cleansing? She could not say the words. She could not say the words. Now, was it because she believed that there was still some space for negotiation with uh, the Aliyev regime? Uh, I can't speak on her behalf, but it was uh, blatantly hypocritical and really insulting 
really, really insulting. And when she said there were tens of thousands left, uh, Jeremy, today there, there, there are no Armenians left in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's the exodus started on September 24, and within four days, 90% of the population had had left. Not and 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 you know that the the thing that's so infuriating right now is that Azerbaijan is trying to position, you know, they had the choice to stay. They just didn't want to stay. And you have to ask yourself, why would an entire nation get up in a matter of hours? Some of some 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 of the people in the villages were still in their slippers. They didn't have time. They didn't have time. They maybe grabbed their documents when they came under attack. How can an entire nation, entire people get up and say, oh, I don't want to live here anymore? When you have been bombed and attacked and psychologically terrorized, when you've been kept in a total blockade for nine months, where you, even the air you breathe is not your air anymore. Do you, I don't know if you've seen the images out of Stepanagir, the capital. It's, you know, I've been to Artsakh many, many times and I have many friends there. And, um, you know, the, the full brunt of what I have witnessed has still not sunk in, but it's, it's absolutely devastating and it's absolute, uh, scar on the face of what we consider to be, um, the international community. For me, it's dead. It's dead. And Maria, you mentioned earlier the rules-based order and Armenia as being a bulwark of that in the region. And it seems that that whole contention has been laid to waste now with these recent events. Can you talk a bit about why there's been this deafening silence or what the reasons you think are behind it? You mentioned energy interests, at least in Europe. But what are the other factors that has led to the U.S. and other powers to take a relatively muted response to these scenes which are now playing out? Well, I think we have to be honest um, with ourselves as Armenians because the West always saw Armenia as an outpost, uh, a colony of Russia, if you will. Uh, And I remember... Uh, in 2013 when Armenia did that U-turn in its foreign policy where it was sort of moving toward Europe uh, and then under pressure from Putin, it decided to join the customs union, which then morphed into the Eurasian Economic Union. And I remember there was a journalist here in Yerevan, I think it was from the Irish Times, and he said, you know, Europe is in shock that Armenia decided not to sign the association agreement. And if you remember, that's what led to, uh, you know, the problems in Ukraine uh, back then. And uh, I said, well, I'm shocked that you're shocked. Uh, as a very small country, very vulnerable country with no access to the sea, with two of our four borders basically blockaded, you know, our <laughs> our, our neighbor to the south is Iran, who's considered to be you know, part of the axis of evil. And then we only have uh, Georgia to the north. Armenia has very limited choices when it comes to its security. And because Russia had promised to be our security guarantor. And I think that was one of the reasons why uh, Washington and Brussels uh, also sort of had a hands-off thing. Well, it's Russia's problem. Let Russia deal with it. This shifted after Russia invaded Ukraine. So that's where things began to shift. When uh, Russia was seen as uh, the aggressor, which it was with its invasion of Ukraine and how all of Europe um, uh, obviously went in support of Ukraine, as did the United States and NATO. Um, and then they they saw that Russia was a growing uh, problem and power. It was a hegemon, but today it's a failed hegemon in our region. And now the uh, America wants to step in and help. But of course, uh, there aren't going to be any American tanks being brought in, and Europe doesn't have a standing army. <laughs> so uh, 
Um, right now, I think Armenia is basically left to its own devices. Uh, but that has sort of been the historical reason why the U.S. has not been more actively engaged in, in, in Armenia and in the region. But with Russia's weakening position, I think they saw this as an opportunity to come in and sort of give Russia a soft exit. Uh, Russia is not going to softly exit anytime soon, <laughs> unfortunately or fortunately, depends on how you see the world. I want to ask you a bit more about the actual exodus, which is taking place at the moment uh, of Armenians. It's finished, babe. It's over. <laughs> it's finished, yeah. What are some of the reasons? Because the Azeri government has said, oh, we will help people become citizens of this new area and you can stay and so forth. But obviously people have fled in terror and huge, huge numbers from this region. Can you tell us why Armenians made that choice to leave this territory, uh, which, as you said, has been inhabited by Armenians for millennia now? Every family in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh has had somebody die. They have gone through three, four wars in their lifetime. Uh, I remember in 2016, there was a, a short four-day war, uh, and I was there right after, and I was talking to a lot of families, and people were just very exhausted, if not knowing what the future held. After all, people just want to live in safety and have a dignified life and raise their families and have children and, and you know, prosper or, or, or whatever. Um, after the 2020 war, we lost 5,000 men, which is the equivalent of how many men the United States lost in Vietnam, if you look at our numbers compared to the U.S. numbers. And just as America suffered for decades getting out of the Vietnam syndrome, we're still, we're, we're have hot and heavy into that, into that devastating loss. And then, you have to remember, these people were kept in a blockade. So like a year and a half after the war, they're placed in a blockade. They can't get out. The families were separated. They, they had no access to, to proper medication. They, they were terrorized. Uh, the constant ceasefire violations. And uh, we see how Azerbaijan's authorities, Baku's, uh, treats its own population there is no freedom of speech in Azerbaijan. Uh, human rights defenders are in prison. Uh, journalists have fled Azerbaijan. They work from abroad because there is no freedom of speech, no freedom of assembly. These people have, every generation has lost somebody in their family and they are human. And after 24 hours, the, uh, the Artsakh defense forces were forced to disband. They were basically left defenseless against a very strong army. Huh? With Armenia not coming to their aid because Armenia could no longer come to their aid, Russian peacekeepers who were not peacekeepers at all, who basically aided and abetted in collusion with the Azerbaijani forces. So of course these people are going to flee. You know, the people in Arsakh have large families and, um, when, the road was opened, they left. And it wasn't because they chose to leave. They were forcibly displaced. I think this is a very critical... Words matter. They were forcibly displaced. Who leaves their... People's homes, I, you know, I've been seeing images, their doors are open. There was this one old lady who was from this village. She was talking to a journalist in, in the southern, in southern Armenia. She said, I left a note, you know, she goes, I washed my dishes. I put everything away. I tidied up my house and I left a note to the Azeris. And I said, in this house, there lived a dignified family. Please take care of it. And also, I beg you to water my flowers. You don't just walk away like that there's <laughs> real fear of annihilation, real fear of massacres, real fear of atrocities, and people are going to save their children. You would, I would. 
You know, um, President um, Aliyev of uh, of Azerbaijan said that he had um, restored sovereignty, quote, with an iron fist. That that's his own words. And you know, of course, part of his justification for all of this, like many times, like often happens in these kinds of conflicts, goes back many decades and um, references to the slaughter of Azeri people. And, um, you know, and you have this, these kind of epic narratives, but on a, on a sort of real politics um, level, what is his play here? Like what, what, why, why does he want this territory? Is it about settling of scores, teaching a lesson, we're going to mass exterminate them uh, or, or expel them from the territory. We're sending a message to others who may dare to take up arms against the Azerbaijani state or to start making rumblings about independence or being a part of another country. Or are there other economical or geopolitical motives at play for wiping the Armenian population away from this territory and seizing it once and for all. He said he's going to turn it into a paradise. Um, you know, I mean, he, he really, he, he sometimes says the quiet parts out loud. I mean, that's one thing for people who followed his sort of elevation and rise in his career. But I'm, I'm asking you to, to, to dismantle the kind of mythical narratives and talk about the real politics here. Why is this happening from Azerbaijan's perspective? Yeah. Well, Stepan Agert Arsakh was a paradise, actually. There was no need to make a new one. Um, we have to understand that in after uh, 1994, when the Bishkek Protocol was signed and uh, there was a ceasefire, there was, first of all, no solution to the conflict. There was no resolution to the conflict that took place. There was the OAC Minsk Group co-chairs that was made up of the United States, France, and Russia. And I used to call them, you know, basically diplomatic tourism. They would come every couple of months, they'd come to Yerevan, they'd go to Baku, they'd, you know, stay in their nice expensive hotels, and they, there was really no effort to, to come to a final solution. And it was a very complex, you know, historical, ge geopolitical um, conflict, I understand that. But we also have to understand that since 1994, the psyche of uh, the people of Azerbaijan as the defeated side was used very robustly by the leadership of Azerbaijan. It was always about, we're going to get revenge, we're going to get our lands back, we're going to make the Armenians suffer, look what they did to our people. And there was displacement in the first war, both Armenian and Azeri. War is a sick, horrific human action, and everybody suffered. I'm not demeaning or diminishing the suffering of anybody during that war. Uh, but the entire narrative, the mythical narrative that was devised in Azerbaijan was about getting revenge. And that's how he's been able to maintain his leadership or his hold, if you will, on the people. And with his uh, victory in 2020, and he was walking around with his fist, his iron fist, making a mockery, continues to make a mockery of the Armenian people and keeps wanting to get one concession after another after another from the Armenian side. Now, having said that, there are obviously bigger geopolitical considerations here. Uh, there's the issue of Turkey, who 
what they want to do now is to create what they're calling the Zankezur Corridor, which is in the southern part of Armenia, have an extraterritorial corridor that would link Azerbaijan because it has an exclave, Nakhichevan, which borders Armenia on the one side and Turkey on the other And so they want these historic, you know, pan-Turkic dreams to come true. And the only country that's sort of standing in their way is Christian Armenia. I'm not making this about religion at all, but I mean, these are just the facts as, as we see them. Uh, so there is Turkey who, who wants its connections all the way to Central Asia. Uh, there's Azerbaijan that wants connections with uh, Turkey and beyond. Armenia is in the way. Uh, Armenia is, has been devastated, decimated, armed forces. It is in a, a very, very weak and vulnerable position. So it's strike while the iron is hot and uh, get as many concessions from the Armenian side as possible. But you know, what happened on September 19 when they launched this attack and within 24 hours, Nagorno-Karabakh basically capitulated and we saw this mass exodus. It did not have to come to this. But unfortunately, decades and decades of these narratives of these myths, which we also created in Armenia too, we, 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 we fell into these uh, patterns, into this paradigm of believing that, you know, the status quo was going to keep uh, keep holding that Russia wouldn't allow this to happen. We were their strategic partner. The West wouldn't allow ethnic cleansing. And I think it was a very horrific wake-up call for us to understand that we are very much alone in the world and that we have to uh, build up our armed forces. We have to build up our own security. We have to diversify our, our foreign sort of relations with different countries, whether it's multilateral or bilateral relations, that dependence on one hegemon has led us down this path to hell that we're living at the moment. And we have to be able to um, learn diplomacy. We have to learn how to build our army again. But so, so it's really, so there's so much to say in this whole conflict. And we're trying to say it in a few minutes. And sorry if I'm all over the place. I'm just trying to give an overall picture of, of the situation at the moment. No, that's excellent. Uh, and Maria, Leading to the next question as well, too, you've outlined the scenario where Armenia is quite isolated today. It's uh, currently at the receiving end of this military assault, uh, absorbing refugees from this territory. And it remains the case that none of its neighbors or the international community has weighed in forcefully on its side to say that further such incursions would be out of the table. What is next for Armenia or what's next for the region most likely in the future right now? And what has the Azeri government said about future territorial concessions or demands that they might make on Armenia, given its relatively uh, disadvantaged military position today? Well, as I said, the war, uh, the 44-day war ended on November 9, 2020. In May of 2021 and November of 2021, there were incursions into the sovereign territory of the Republic of Armenia. Uh, this was at Black Lake and at several other uh, locations. And then in September of 2022, there was another mass invasion into the Republic of Armenia. Today, currently, Azerbaijani soldiers have taken over 100, about 150 square kilometers of Armenian territory. They have taken strategic heights in the Republic of Armenia. There are Azerbaijani soldiers right now on the Republic of Armenia's uh, territory. The West and Russia have always said that Armenia's uh, territorial integrity were their red lines, that they would not allow anything to happen to the Republic of Armenia, whereas Nagorno-Karabakh was an unrecognized uh, state. Uh, it was always a thorn in the side of the world that, you know, 
it's fine that it's over with now, you know, never mind that there, you know, 100,000 people are now homeless. Um, but my real fear, and I, this is not fear out of, you know, the ether, this is based on what we've seen since uh, 2020, is that Azerbaijan will launch another attack on the sovereign territory of Armenia to force a corridor to its exclave and then on to Turkey. I have very little doubt that this is coming, whether it happens tomorrow or six months from now. Um, this is a, a, a real, very um, critical reality that we have to be prepared for. Now, they have said red lines, red lines, but um, there has not been proper delimitation and demarcation of the borders. Azerbaijan is using this as an excuse to say, well, it's not clear if these territories are Azerbaijani or Armenian. Um, although Armenia has publicly recognized Azerbaijan's territorial integrity, Azerbaijan has not recognized Armenia's territorial integrity. And there is military buildup along Armenia's borders, with Russia now aligning itself with Baku, um, with uh, the West not coming in to support Iran will, I, I cannot see a scenario in which Iran would deploy forces. It would only do that to protect its own borders with Armenia. Uh, Armenia will be left at the mercy of a much stronger army that is supported by Turkey and Russia. I mean, what, what you're describing, it's, it's, um, it's quite relevant to view this also in the geopolitical context of the war in Ukraine, where also you have uh, Turkey in a very interesting position because of its relationship with uh, with Russia in particular. Um, but in a, in a way, Armenia now, a very small country, is finding itself in the middle of, of, of one of the premier geopolitical chessboards in the world. And, and I know it's been that way through history, but we're, we're in a particularly acute moment in history where you have... Russia having invaded Ukraine, I think underestimated the amount of weaponry that NATO was going to pour in. Uh, you know, they're not, I mean, Russia often says it, and I've repeated it before, they're actually right about this. Russia is not just fighting Ukraine, Russia is fighting Ukraine and NATO's military infrastructure and intelligence infrastructure. But in the context of, of what we're talking about right now, you have Turkey, a NATO member, essentially now fully. Uh, backing uh, or, or entering a, a kind of an alliance with uh, with Russia, you have Iran looming on the on the outskirts of it and having its own complicated history uh, with both Armenia and Azerbaijan. How do you see the dynamics playing out with the war in Ukraine impacting the scenario that you're talking about? You're and I want people to understand this. You're essentially predicting that Azerbaijan is going to use military force to create a corridor that would uh, connect Azerbaijan to Turkey. And, and by necessity, it, it, the most direct route would be to go straight through southern Armenia um, in order to open that. Talk about, though, when you, when you think about the conclusions that one can draw from what you just said, how do the geopolitical moves that we're seeing in Ukraine impact a scenario you're talking about, given that we're involving Russia and a NATO member, Turkey? I, I, yeah, I, I briefly touched upon it earlier that after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, the dynamics changed 
tremendously in our region as well. Russia was preoccupied with its war there. America or the West saw this as an opportunity to try to push Russia out. Russia and Turkey aligned themselves. Every time in our history that Russia and Turkey's interests have aligned, it has always meant uh, disaster or tragedy for us. That <laughs> that's always been the case. Um, I think the biggest problem that the U.S. has with Turkey, although we've heard sort of behind the scenes, kind of not behind the scenes, but off the record kind of conversations that, yes, they are very concerned with what's happening in Turkey. Obviously, <laughs> you know very well what's happening in Turkey. But because it is a NATO member and because of its strategic location, Turkey becomes uh, problematic. How do they deal with a NATO member who's supposed to help them in their war against whatever it is that is happening? So this has created a, a, a lot of uh, insecurity, obviously, in our region. And one thing that I did want to uh, point out that I didn't, one of uh, Moscow's intentions is because they want to topple, at least from what we're seeing, Armenia's government, because it, they see it as a color revolution. And uh, before Pashinyan, all of the leaders before him were quite... Um, well aligned with Moscow, with the Kremlin. Uh, then you have this journalist turned politician who rallies thousands and thousands of people, topples a sitting president in Armenia, takes over and talks about democracy and human rights and freedoms. And, and so obviously the Kremlin is also trying to destabilize Armenia to put in their own puppet, probably regime in Armenia or get Armenia to be part of the union state along with Belarus. So there are a lot of considerations going on. And it's all, like you said, it's a chess game and you're trying to figure out, okay, what should be our next move or who's going to be doing what? Um, so at the moment, it's, it's a very complex and convoluted and, you know, for the first time, People will always ask me, you know, as a journalist, as an editor, they, you know, they they know that I'm well informed compared to others. And what is the what is the end game? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? At the moment, I don't see it, to be quite frank. When you have major powers or regional powers around you that are aligned, Turkey and Russia, uh, with Iran always questionable. You never know which way Iran is going to swing. We are at the mercy of those geopolitical shifts, and whether Putin wins or loses in Ukraine or it's a draw. Either way, it's going to have huge impacts, uh, huge impacts on our region uh, as well. Maria, we only have a, a couple minutes left, but I, I did want to ask you one of those very big picture history questions. And, and, and that is, you know, the, the Turkish government for many, many years has relentlessly pursued any prominent individuals or publications that have mentioned the phrase Armenian genocide um, to describe what I think clearly historians agree was a genocide committed by Turkish forces against the Armenian people. Give, give a brief overview of, of that history. We could go back hundreds of years but using that as a reference point and Turkey's militant objection to depictions of what happened to the Armenian people um, in the early 1900s specifically as a genocide and talk about the suffering that has occurred among the Armenian people and the way the world has perceived it. 
I've often said that the modern Turkish Republic was founded on the ashes of the Armenians of the Ottoman Empire. I'm My uh, grandparents were Ottoman Armenians. Um, so four of my grandparents were orphaned during the genocide, and they grew up in orphanages. So I was raised by... Um, children of survivors of the genocide. My father's roots go to Musadar and my uh, other side of the family go to um, Marash, uh, which is now in, in present-day Turkey. So the genocide started in 1915, uh, in the middle of the First World War, and it was uh, a, a clearly uh, well-orchestrated, executed uh, annihilation of an entire people. One and a half million Armenians perished, uh, many more were sent to the deserts of Syria, and many ended up in orphanages, like my my grandparents, both paternal and maternal. And the Armenians were dispersed throughout the world, uh, primarily first in the Middle East, and then on to the Americas and different parts of the world. In the diaspora, where I'm from, it was very much an integral part of who we were, how we identified as, as an Armenian. That was the first thing we would tell people, that we were victims of genocide. And we know that um, Turkey, for many, many decades, uh, spent millions and millions of dollars in, in, in genocide denial. Um, but it was clearly refuted by, you know, historical accounts, documentations, and one country after another has recognized the Armenian genocide. And unfortunately, Turkey continues to deny to deny that. And, you know, I've been to Turkey, to what we call Western Armenia, which is now Eastern Turkey, and I've seen the, you know, 3,000-year-old sort of remains and the churches and, and, and the monasteries and everything that were built by the Armenians and uh, that no longer exist, that don't have any Armenians there anymore. Um, and so this has been, uh, you know, a very defining moment in our history. And when we see Azerbaijan, who is the ally of Turkey, when they consider themselves one nation, two states, the trauma creeps back up our spines, and it does for me uh, as, as well. Um, they're back to finish the job that they couldn't finish. And now I feel like I'm living my grandparents' lives again. Uh, it's, it's just, it seems to be on repeat. And this hatred that they have of the Armenian, um, you know, uh, it's, it's very unnerving. And, and I think another thing that was very um, disturbing for us was the role of Israel. As a country, as a nation who suffered Holocaust, we thought that there would be a mutual understanding of what that meant to be surrounded by enemies, what that meant to be hated by those enemies, what that meant when we were both victims of horrific crimes against humanity, and yet, you know, Israel was selling military hardware that then was used to kill, you know, thousands of young men, including some of my friends. Yeah, and well, we certainly could ask uh, the Palestinian people about that hypocrisy as 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 well. Uh, Maria, we're going to leave it there, and thank you so much for sharing um, not only your political analysis and historical analysis, um, but also some of your personal and your family story. Thanks so much for being with us here on Intercepted. Yeah, I thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. That's Maria Tatizian, Editor-in-Chief of EVN Report. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is production of The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is Editor-in-Chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Legal review by David Brelo. And this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. 
If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely leave us a rating or review wherever you find your podcasts. It helps other listeners to find us as well. If you want to give us feedback of any kind, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussein.